This episode of The Hash is sponsored by CypherTrace, a MasterCard company. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Monday's top story. Do. It's about Coinbase. Coinbase beefing with the SEC. Remember that story? All right. Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase, walked back a little bit of the we're taking our ball and going home vibes that had previously been channeled, but still poking some shots at SEC and Chairman Gary Gensler. Now, the SEC still has to respond to the latest from Coinbase as mandated by a judge. So we're waiting on that any old day now. But yeah, Brian Armstrong still poking at the bear that is the SEC and Gary Gensler, but also toning it down a little bit. So not full out war of words. We're leaving the US. We'll see what happens. But I don't know. Suggest something about the whole story for sure. So I'm going to toss it to Will. What do you think? I guess I'm a Brian Armstrong whisperer because I called this. I said it was posturing last time, right? Like, and it, it totally was. All this was posturing. Coinbase has probably invested more in U.S. infrastructure, meaning licensing in the regime of the SEC and other uh, regulators than any other crypto company out there, right? They're the first company to really go public for crypto, minus a bunch of other Bitcoin mining companies, which will kind of like waff off to the side. That was a monumental moment for crypto in April 2021 when Coinbase did go public. And they do have a lot of these other licenses, which Coindesk has covered uh, ad nauseum in a lot of different articles talking about all the different licenses they need to be able to function as an exchange, as a custodian, as sort of like a neobank within the US. So no, they were not ever going to leave the US. But that doesn't mean they can't be opportunistic and set up like a side entity and move offshores. And that's what we're doing right now with this Bermuda thing, right? They're opening up this Bermuda derivatives exchange at the moment. And uh, they're going to be able to take in a lot of revenue that way and sort of diversify themselves and also sort of take advantage of this regulatory arbitrage that we've seen Binance do for quite some time, right? Coinbase has eschewed away from that for good reason. Didn't really make sense at the time. They tried to stay in line and be good. The SEC seemed like it was playing ball. Then they weren't all of a sudden, so Coinbase had to pivot. And now they sort of have two business lines. Like they have a US business line with Coinbase and they have like this offshore one, which they're going to build with derivatives. Both are going to be lucrative. So I'm not feeling bad for Brian right now. I am happy that they're leading the charge in this. I would say they're also not alone. There are some other crypto companies that are going after the SEC. Jen, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, I think when we look at Brian's comments, we have to think about the stakeholders here, right? And I immediately think about the customers and the shareholders. I don't have exact numbers in front of me, but I've read multiple publications that the majority of Coinbase's customers are in the US, right? And so for Brian Armstrong, for Coinbase to be out there saying, we're looking at going overseas, we may be looking at not staying in the US because of regulatory uncertainty, I think makes customers afraid and it makes shareholders afraid. And so I think this totally makes sense when we look at all of the stakeholders in Coinbase's ecosystem and where Coinbase is currently getting their revenue from. So this makes sense. The other side of the story, you know, I think that Brian Armstrong and Coinbase being at the head of this fight for regulatory clarity in the U.S., is honestly like a marketing campaign in the making. Last year, we spoke so much about exchanges gaining trust, and we saw that kind of blow up in everyone's face at the end of last year. But if Coinbase is able to get regulatory clarity and be very public about it right now, I think they're going to win over the next generation of crypto users when it comes to trust. They're going to be able to say, you know, we led this charge, we got clarity. And at the end of the day, you guys are who's important to us. So 
That's what I took away from this, Zach. Yeah, there's no one else really in the U.S., right? It's their game to lose. And I think Coinbase has invested heavily in the U.S. It's always been, hey, we're U.S.-based. We want to comply with regulators. It's just that the regulators haven't really uh, followed suit, right? They've been asking for this clarity for years. Uh, they've failed to respond to a petition, all this stuff, right? But I think in the long term, the investment in the U.S. market will likely pay off for Coinbase. And likely they see that as well, right? So when Brian Armstrong previously was like, hey, we're leaving. And then today he's like, no, we're not. Of course, that makes sense. And shout out to Will for calling it. But yeah, they're going to have to go elsewhere to get some of these more attractive business opportunities in front of them. And that's what we've seen with this Bermuda thing and this derivatives exchange thing. They can reach a more degenerate audience of people who want that 5X, right? Want those, want those options to be able to trade through Coinbase. So we might see more of that, more dabbling in the things that can only be offered offshore while also retaining a strong footprint in the US because it's their game to lose, right? Binance US is floundering relative to Coinbase. The others out there aren't as strong, aren't as widely known aren't on TV, to be honest, talking about why the existing system is kind of janky, right? So I think Coinbase sees that its long-term prospects are best suited in the US. They're going to try to advance this narrative. The SEC is an impediment to that, but they're not going to pull up stakes and head elsewhere. They're in a tough spot messaging-wise, and I think that's why we're seeing sort of the backpedaling a little bit in these most recent statements. But I don't know. There will certainly be more. Very much looking to see what the SEC says in its response to Coinbase's petition. Tuesday's top story. Digital asset, which in my opinion is one of the more poorly named companies in the space, <laughs> is leading a consortium with Deloitte, Goldman Sachs, and others to make interoperable private blockchains for the institutional sector a thing. Enterprise blockchain is back. Maybe it never went away, but it's a bit different now. And this speaks to the difference that we find ourselves here in 2023 relative to when we found ourselves in 2020. 19, back when some of these initial ideas were floated. This one, I think you're seeing a lot of the interoperability conversation take place as you look to stitch together all these various institutional blockchains that are doing stuff over there in enterprise land. I'm going to toss this to Will. Maybe he has a spicy take. I don't know. Is this, uh, is this new news? Is this old news? Is this exciting? Is this a rehash of what we saw last time around? What's your thoughts? Certainly not exciting. Uh, and to your point, yes, one of the worst named companies in the space. It's impossible to find anything about these guys. But sure. they are very good at getting money, I will say. Uh, looking at their team, they've been around since 2014. And the most recent fundraising series I could find, again, this could be incorrect because it was super hard to Google anything about digital assets. Uh, the Series D, they raised $120 million back in 2022. That's a lot of money for someone who seemingly hasn't put out a lot of products. And that's a lot of these enterprise blockchain products, right? It's like, we work with a lot of high-profile names. We raise big rounds. And some people use us out there in the ether to move money back and forth between banks, maybe take our word on it. That's mostly what we've seen to date. Like, there has been some stuff from like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan about like their quorum chain and how they're using this uh, Ethereum fork of sorts to move stable coins back and forth themselves instead of like using like their own bank network. They use a blockchain-based bank network. But a lot of this stuff is the same old, same old. Let's put out some sort of enterprise blockchain solution, which slaps some money on top of it and call it a day. So I'm pretty bearish on these things. Jen, over to you. Yeah, so the interoperability piece and the synchronization piece really were driven home in this article. And I thought, like, isn't it funny that we've created this whole alternative financial system and we're still trying to solve these, these same problems, the interoperability and synchronization? And I hope that these institutions that are trying to implement the technology so that they can better work together behind the scenes 
ends up helping them work together for their end user. I mean, like, I don't know if you've ever tried to get information from one financial institution to another, or even from one department within a financial institution to another department. It is difficult, and I feel like the technology can be used to make that process a little bit better. And I think this is maybe a nice little blast from the past to show that institutions, you know, are not only looking at crypto from the currency standpoint, but they're still trying to use the technology. They're still trying to figure out how they can make their operations a little bit better. But yes, definitely boring story to start us off with, Zach. So I'm kicking it back to you. Take us home. Make it exciting for us. I will offer an alternate take. I'm excited about this. Come on, guys. The Canton Network, obviously, I think a nod to Switzerland, where they have different cantons. But uh, I, I mean, this to me is very much in the real world asset conversation. RWAs, it's everywhere. It's like a whole new narrative around RWAs. You're settling, I don't know, US treasuries on the blockchain. And there are operational advantages to doing that, right? You get instant settlement. You eliminate some of the bureaucratic red tape that exists with some of these backend systems, right? So the fact that you have some really big names associated with this project, Goldman Sachs, BNP Paribas, big time names who are looking to experiment with this stuff as a way to improve operational efficiencies, that to me is maybe the story here, right? And it's maybe something that we shouldn't poo-poo out of just like out the gate, right? So the idea that these systems can be used within these networks of big old banks is something that I think is really interesting and something we've seen a lot of momentum around in the last weeks and months around this conversation, specifically around RWAs, right? Can we get these things? Can we tokenize the many, many assets in the world, tokenize them, log them to a blockchain and find better ways to zap them around the world than our current system now with sort of correspondent banking and all this red tape that takes so long to get money across the world. If we can use blockchain to log that in a near instantaneous fashion, then surely that's an operational improvement. And I think that's probably what this bet is from Goldman Sachs, Digital Asset, and others. But I toss it to Will. I think he's going to shoot me down. Yeah, I'm going to shoot you down hardcore. Right. I just want to say, we, don't put words I mean, we did. Mouth. We did. I mean, we kind of took a dump on their like name, a too, a little bit. Boring. You know? Not we. I, mean, I, you. I hear you. I hear you. I mean, <laughs> you, you're, you're right. You're right. Sorry, Digital Asset. I take it back. It's okay. You guys are like impossibly hard to search online. And maybe that's a good thing. But anyway, Will, what do you think? Well, to be fair, they found it in 2014. So maybe they were too far ahead of their time. So it's like, you know, blockchain.com kind of nailed it because everyone's looking for them. But they could have in an alternative universe been like completely buried by SEO. Last thing I want to say on this, Zach, you are becoming like the authoritarian lover on the show or something. Like what's up with like, yeah, I like CBDC, I help me pay my taxes. Yeah, that's right. I like enterprise yeah. blockchain. <laughs> yep. I don't know. Yep. Something I'm trying to be like the Stephen A. Smith of like boring crypto takes. Uh, maybe that I think mm. that's I think that's gonna be my lane. What do you think? I, I don't love it, but I guess it does <laughs> add a little color to the show at the very least. Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Is identifying and mitigating crypto risk a challenge? Do you need help balancing compliance issues with the need to protect against fraud? CypherTrace, a MasterCard company, can help. They work with banks, governments, regulators, exchanges, and other crypto entities to identify risk, trace the movement of crypto funds, and help comply with global regulations. Visit CypherTrace.com today for more information. Wednesday's top story. Should crypto be treated differently or similarly to existing asset classes? That's the big question right now in a House hearing. We have a rare joint hearing from two of the biggest committees dealing with this stuff. 
And that's kind of what they're debating, right? We had a bit of sparring in the opening part of this hearing. Let's hear it. We're going to go to Chairman McHenry. Let's hear it. The purpose here is to make law for us to give assurance to the marketplace and to consumers to close regulatory gaps, uh, to make sure that you have like kind regulation of new things in our society and the potential they hold. Uh, we need to get this right, both for a couple of reasons. One is to uh, harness innovation and enable consumer protection. And the other is to ensure that the CFTC and the Securities and Exchange Commission will work together to ensure that consumers are protected, unlike what is currently happening. So that is Patrick McHenry, the Republican of North Carolina, in response to Stephen Lynch, the Democrat of Massachusetts, saying that, hey, crypto should just comport with the existing things. And obviously, there appears to be a disagreement in terms of how to regulate this asset in the U.S. going forward. It comes as the SEC is really cracking down on a lot of projects and firms in the space. And it suggests that this is very much an open question. How do you regulate cryptocurrency in the U.S.? Let's toss it to Will. What do you think, man? This is the big idea, right? Should it work with existing securities and commodities regulation? Should it be something new entirely established by new legislation? McHenry arguing for the latter. We need new laws. Lynch arguing for the former. What's your thoughts? Yeah, lots of thoughts here. Uh, just to bring some clarity to the conversation for a second. It's, it's interesting. We have like the House Committee and the Agriculture Committee. The Agriculture Committee normally deals with things like commodities. And so that's why we're uh, bringing in this committee specifically. And they're working together because we have a bicameral House, right? Uh, We have Congress and we have the Senate and they work together to produce legislation, or I should say the House and the Senate makes Congress. So we have the legislation. And the reason they're going through this is because we do have like all these government agencies, the SEC, the CFTC, and others that are kind of determining what they think this market looks like in different ways. There's a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of fighting and bickering. We saw that at consensus, right? There's a lot of different people speaking to this fact on stage. There's a lot of confusion, even among government employees. And I think this is great that they're actually talking about this, but we're really getting to like the nut of the matter here, which is that don't have agreement on what that looks like. Uh, the Stephen Lynch, who's sort of heading up this whole committee, is saying that, hey, we already have clarity on the law. What we don't have is good enforcement. Uh, McHenry and some others, uh, like Barbara Walters from California, is saying, we do not have clarity and we need new legislation. So it really comes down to how you see digital assets, whether that be Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the way over to like scam coins like Pepe, right? How do we see this entire market? And hopefully they're able to come up with some sort of solid framework. It's funny to look at this and then also look at what the IRS has done over 10 years ago now at this point. I think when 2014, the IRS first came out with like its own classification of how it saw digital assets. It just said it's property. It taxes property and taxes income if you have like mining rewards or something like that. So the IRS already kind of got it right. And you know, 10 years later, we're still waiting on Congress. We're still waiting on the SEC and the CFTC to figure out what they're doing. Jen, over to you. Did you call Pepe a scam coin? Yes. Well, well. well. A meme coin. <laughs> I mean, kind of is. Go ahead, though. Okay, okay. You know, I read Representative Stephen Lynch's uh, quote here. The problem is not regulatory ambiguity, rather it's massive non-compliance. And I just think about what's happening in this industry, right? Someone who works in the industry is someone who reports on the industry. We hear about firms like Coinbase and Gemini and Library who have very publicly tried to work with regulators, tried to seek clarity where they didn't see clarity. You know, they have legal teams, things were unclear, things were ambiguous. They tried to get more information. And we saw them all get slapped with lawsuits. 
And so I think it is naive and almost a little bit blind to make these statements, but have all of this really hard evidence to point to that shows that, you know, maybe you think the rules are clear, but they are not applicable to the industry. And we've seen it time and time again. Zach? Yeah, I think that's what it boils down to, right? The non-compliance, that's the thing. Is it, is it willful non-compliance or is it right. simply unable to comply? And I think like the industry has long argued that these things don't fit neatly in a, a securities box, right? Like who, who is the entity that is going to produce public records for investors in the U.S. to digest if it's you know, run by a decentralized autonomous organization, if it's just a smart contract on Ethereum, right? So there are these sort of fringe cases that haven't fully been reckoned with. Um, you know, the existing regulatory structure is great at regulating points of trust, regulating companies that exist in the real world and can be brought into compliance with the law. But there's some stuff that is just like probably not, there, there's no... There's no corresponding law like for which they can be brought into compliance to. And so this question of non-compliance, I think, is a really sticking point. It is, it's like, well, the industry is saying, hey, we're trying to comply. Like, work with us here, people. We want some rules to comply with, and we're just not getting those. So that, I think, is what's being argued here. Um, you know, it's funny because I think the Lynch statement is very much in accordance with what SEC Chair Gary Gensler said, right? Hey, most of these things are pretty much like securities. We can figure it out. Just give me some more money. Expand my remit. We can make this work in a way that's com uh, that like comports with our existing compliance structure. Um, others aren't so sure that that's even possible. You know, Coinbase and others sort of championing that cause. So it's funny to see this conversation play out both in Congress on the legislative side, on the administrative side, uh, through the SEC in its fights with various participants in the industry. And I don't know. I don't. I just. I'm, I'm less and less optimistic that we're going to get that clear answer. Um, and I'm very curious to see what the outcome of all this is. If it's just going to be continued ambiguity or if it's going to be a rule and whether or not the industry is going to be able to abide by that rule is really this sort of the secondary question. But I give it to Jen for her thoughts. Well, when will we get there, Zach? This is like the first step in a long process to actually creating new legislation. It feels like there's hearing after hearing. And, you know, McHenry in the statement we listened to at the beginning of the segment said that he wants uh, more clear legislation so that we can protect consumers and we can continue to foster innovation. I just feel like this process is getting so, so drawn out. And the, the two areas that are suffering are consumers and employees. All the talent is leaving the U.S. They're going elsewhere. They're setting up shop elsewhere. They're setting up shop where there is clear crypto regulation. And the places they're setting up shop, they have clear crypto regulation. And, and sometimes in some of these places, that crypto regulation is, is quite strong, but at least it's clear. And so I hope the U.S. can see what's happening and get their ducks in a row and speed things up. But I am losing faith very quickly. Thursday's top story. We're going to talk about Do Kwan, Terraform Labs founder Do Kwan. It's on the run from authorities until recently arrested by the Montenegrin cops not long ago. Do Kwan's attorney is now proposing a $437,000 bail, and they're denying the charges of having falsified travel documents, which is what Do Kwan and one of his colleagues was booked on. So the Do Kwan saga continues in this jurisdiction and in others. Where are we at with the Do Kwan story, Jen? What are you thinking? What's, what's, what's this about? What's this about? Well, I read this story and I think I f it's pretty easy to prove if a document is real or not. And so for them to be charged and sitting in jail 
for using fake travel documents and then for them to say, I haven't committed any crime. I just feel like we keep getting gaslit. Like something happens that's like, you know, a real thing that we can all see the effects from. And then they're like, you know, actually, it wasn't my fault. I didn't know anything was going on. And now I didn't know that my documents were fake. I also think $437,000 is a very low bail for the alleged crimes that Do Kwan has to face. Uh, But I thought it was interesting. The lawyer suggested that bail and supervision measures be imposed. It felt very SBF-like. They're proposing a scenario where uh, Do Kwan would be in an apartment. He, He would be prohibited from leaving that apartment, but he wouldn't be sitting in jail right now. I thought, like, it's a good one from the SBF playbook. Zach. It's a nice apartment. I got I got a shout out to DL <laughs> News, the news outfit from uh, DeFi Llama has really been owning the um, Doe in Europe story, and they sort of revealed the uh, the luxurious nature of this apartment that was bought allegedly with ill-gotten gains from Doe Quan escaping the whole Terraform Labs and what was it, Terra Guard Foundation debacle. I forget some of that stuff now, but yep, this continues to play out in real time in the courts, and we get to watch it. And we don't get to comment upon allegedly concealed hardware wallets and where they may have been concealed, <laughs> Will, because this is a family show, sir. I'm going to toss it to Adam. Yeah, thanks. Otherwise, Will would have said something uh, pretty yeah. bad. So yeah. I, I, I totally get it. So, <laughs> I mean, I look at this and I have a slightly different take on it, which is that these people are fighting for their lives, right? And there isn't really a consideration that there will be death penalties in any of these cases, even if the worst should happen, you know, and they just lose in every way possible. But the prison sentences, you know, and again, for Doe, you're talking about not just charges in his native home of South Korea, but also in the U.S. This is an existential moment for all of these people, and it's going to last for years. So the expectation on my side remains that they're going to do everything they can to try and avoid that, because once you wind up in jail, then it kind of doesn't matter whether you get convicted or not because you're already there. And again, you can go back to those. There was that uh, hilarious video, again, hilarious for those of us not having actually done anything like this, uh, you know, where uh, SBF was being interviewed and uh, Martin Screlly was on there talking about how, you know, prison's not that bad. And, and you know, Doe was on that call as well. And Doe just kind of like, was just kind of like set back a little bit. Uh, and SBF just like, the, his face just like dropped. And then like the screen went dark. And then he was just gone because he had dropped off the call. And that, that is the thing. Again, you look around the world today, some of the biggest criminals out there really are the ones running our, you know, <laughs> at least I think of them as criminals, uh, the folks running our monetary system, right? And the folks who are involved with implicit corruption at many, many levels of government. And what you find over and over again is that these people are very rarely go to jail, except for when they have actually lost power to the degree where they can no longer prevent it. And so the ability to stay out of jail is itself a sort of form of exercise of power where you're utilizing the money and the power and the favors that you've stored up while you were doing all the bad stuff you were doing to try and prevent that thing that you're really trying to prevent. Because who wants to go to jail, right? Like that's the ultimate loss of autonomy. It's the ultimate loss of control over your own situation. And it's the ultimate signal that you have failed. And frankly, we need many of these people who have done these terrible things to be convicted on the evidence and to go to jail and to set an example that says that, hey, even if you can scam, scam somebody out of a bunch of money, you know, just by kind of lying to them by omission or explicitly building projects that accomplish that exact purpose, this probably isn't a good idea for you. And maybe you shouldn't do that. that doesn't, that's not about crypto. That's about the system as a whole and about the power implicit to it. 
and all the money in it. But yeah, it's definitely something worth watching. Will? Oh, you guys took away my whole line, my whole segment. Sorry. So I don't know if I got... <laughs> can't talk about hardware wallets on this show. Will, gotcha. <laughs> the only thing I will say about this, and I'll hand up to Jen, is the difference in the bail terms that they're requesting versus what SBF actually got. And I think it is like somewhat helpful to like compare SBF and what's happening at Doquan, like two big alleged fraudsters on the run in this bad situation and getting caught up. There's bail terms, right? They both want to live at home in like their parents' basement or their own apartment. $500,000 or so for Doquan is what they're trying to get with. And SBF had $250 million. Of course, that $250 million number turned out to be basically fraudulent. And I don't really understand the math behind that. But it's funny to see the difference. Uh, there's like a multiple here that's quite different. Jen, up to you. Yeah, I was just going to say on the back of Adam's comment, you know, we propped these people up as an industry, Doquan, SBF. I really think that they were operating as if this would never happen to them. This would never be a reality. And maybe in, in some way, shape or form, they really started to believe that they weren't doing anything wrong because they were above the law, you know, hobnobbing with other people who are maybe getting away with similar things. And so Adam, to your point, I think that they are sitting there now and their only defense is to, to say, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. Or at least I didn't know. I wasn't aware because that, that's kind of the last resort now. I think, uh, you know, we go back to Brady Dale who wrote the book on SBF. And I think one of the things that he sort of illuminated is the thinking that leads to these terrible, terrible outcomes, right? Uh, at least in SBF's case, according to Brady and his reporting, he sort of had this probabilistic outcome thinking, right? Where maybe if the entire sum of my good deeds at some future date is 500 billion, then hmm, maybe blowing through $8 billion of value is something that could be justified probabilistically, assuming that one day the man cures malaria or something, right? So I think there is some of that animating force here with Doquan as well, right? He wanted to make a stable coin that was free from the constraints of, uh, of censorship risk in the traditional financial system. He wanted to do that by way of this algorithmic system that did not work twice when he was involved in it, and it ultimately ended up collapsing. But I think the idea that is animating these things are big and noble and audacious. But you're right, Jen, that slippery slope toward criminality in these instances is pretty wild to see unfold with big money. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, the hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 